Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Ian Lake, a general practitioner, GP in the United Kingdom. Now, now, Dr. Lake is a little bit different than most GPs as he himself has type 1 diabetes, and he is really focused on treating patients with type 1 diabetes with low-carb nutrition. So we're going to talk about you know, his experience um, when he was diagnosed. He was diagnosed sort of late with type 1 diabetes at age 30, so an adult onset, um, and what his, his sort of progress was about treating his own diabetes, learning the role of carbohydrates and low-carb, and then how he uses that with his patients. But he's also the organizer of 05100 or the 05100 project. Um, zero calories for five days covering 100 miles. Now, on the surface, it might seem kind of crazy. Why would anybody do that? And that's some of the pushback he got. But as you'll see, he did it for very specific reasons to, to address very specific concerns about both people with type 1 diabetes and people without diabetes about whether they need sugar and glucose, whether they can uh, adequately run on no calories and on their own body fat, and whether the production of ketones would then potentially be dangerous for people with diabetes, and um, how low can blood sugar go. And they, they collected a wealth of data, and it's a, it was a great experiment, which they did safely and successfully, as, as you'll hear about, and sort of what the implications are, both for people as individuals and for healthcare practitioners. So I really hope you uh, enjoy hearing from Dr. Lake what he wanted to accomplish out of this and what do you think he did accomplish. It was a, a pretty remarkable <laughs> a remarkable achievement, um, and I was very, very um, uh, curious to hear about it and, and really enjoyed this interview. One quick uh, addendum I forgot. Look, I, I don't know all the millimoles and he doesn't know all the percentages when we could try and convert hemoglobin A1Cs and we're trying to do the conversions on our brain as we go. So we did have a couple errors in there. So just be aware that 48 millimoles, um, which is the European version of the A1C, is 6.5% for the uh, American version of the A1C. Otherwise, I think we got all our conversions correct, but maybe double check some of the conversions. Uh, I'm a Yankee and he's a Brit and uh, sometimes we don't speak the same language. Okay, after that, uh, now enjoy the interview with Dr. Ian Lake. Well, Dr. Ian Lake, thank you so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast today. Hi, thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. It's really, really nice. Thank you. Yeah, well, I'm sure a lot of our listeners and viewers are anxious to hear more about the 05100 project. And I'm anxious to talk to you about it. But just in case people kind of don't quite know who you are, haven't heard about you before, tell us a little bit about who you are, your background, and your medical practice. And let's talk about that first. And then we'll get into this exciting project you did about the 05100. Yeah, great. Well, I, I'm a GP, a general practitioner in, in the UK, which I've been now for over 30 years. Um, I've come to sort of... Uh, an arrangement with my type one diabetes where I use a keto diet combined with exercise, which seems to suit me very well. But when I was diagnosed, it was uh, when I was in my thirties. So I was a late onset autoimmune type one diabetic and presentation was pretty straightforward. It was raging thirst and, and, and going to the toilet a lot. And uh, as a GP, I managed to diagnose myself, which was a bit of a breakthrough. Um, I had a few ketones, but it was decided before the era of testing, really, to, for genes, etc., that I was, I was a type 1, so I was commenced on insulin straight away. And I had a good prolonged honeymoon period of a couple of years or so. But then gradually, gradually, my um, insulin requirements increased over the subsequent 20 years of uh, uh, a high carbohydrate, a fairly standard diet that most people would 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 recognize as, as a guideline diet. So 50% carbs in your diet, um, about 35% fat. And um, I, I went on that model because that, that was the training I had. And there's no reason to believe otherwise. Right. I, was, I was never brilliant at getting good control. I, I always found it difficult to combine um, diet with insulin shots. So it made it quite difficult for me to to get good control. And my, my HbA1c for most of that diabetic career for the first 20 years was was low to mid 50s. And towards the end of 20 years, my weight was going up, my insulin volumes were going up, and my HbA1c was going up. 
So, so just to clarify, low to mid fifties is about like six point five, six point eight. Um, yeah, percent, some like that. somewhere around yeah. there. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't what I call ideal, but at the time it fitted the guidelines, and uh, nobody was really too too bothered about that. I mean, type one diabetes isn't it? Is thought of as damage or limitation more than anything else. Uh, type one diabetes is thought of as a, a relentlessly progressive disease, and uh, the better that you can control it, the more likely you are to avoid complications in the main. And of course, we all know some people have a worse sort of um, outcome than others. And it's not necessarily because their diet is probably some to do with the genetics, some to do with the severity of the autoimmune disease, etc. So I followed that model for the first 20 years and it, I, I sort of got away with it until I had a quite a nasty uh, hypo when I was caught out, sort of when I was camping and had no supplies of, 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 of glucose. Uh, and I was very lucky to to sort of find some discarded food really on that occasion, which um, which saved me. And roughly at the same time, I started to show signs of getting early retinopathy. Now I'd read uh, Richard Bernstein's Diabetes Solution, which is obviously the ketogenic type of uh, high pro higher protein low carbohydrate diet, and. Um, I put it down for a year and a bit because I thought, well, that that's, looks okay, uh, but it's a bit extreme for me and it's a bit too much fat. <laughs> and that's sort of my training, really. But but after, um, after uh, experiencing an early retinopathy, combined with a few of the other soft signs, so I was getting a lot of palpitations just walking upstairs. Uh, not, not irregular heartbeat, but palpitations. The worst thing for me was what's called postural hypotension. You stand up and have to sort of put your head between your legs for a few seconds to, re to regain sort of um, the sort of sense of stability. And that, that was going on um, six, seven times a day. It wasn't very nice. Aching mm -hmm. joints, feeling tired, slightly blurred vision, all the standard stuff that most people with type 1 would recognize. So when it came to it, I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose now. Um, I might as well start trying another way of uh, doing things. So I picked up Richard Bernstein's book again, read it, uh, decided to try the ketogenic diet. I didn't have a continuous glucose meter at that stage either. So I was on manual, as it were. But from day one, I, I still remember vividly eating my first omelette, thinking about I'll be stroked out, have a stroke by the end of the day, you know, all that fat. <laughs> oh dear, how bad it gets, isn't it? But um, yeah. obviously that didn't happen. I got pretty good control from day one. And over the next three months, I, I was totally convinced that this was the way to go. And then I bought a continuous glucose meter, refined it. And for the last five years, my diabetes controls never been in the diabetic range. And most of the time it's been in the normal range. So I'm quite keen to, you know, use my position, if you like, to try to convince most of the doctors in the UK that this is a, it should be a valid option for people with type 1 diabetes. You know, people might not want to do it, but they should know it's available. Because for me, and I know for a lot of people with type 1, it's revolutionized their lives, really. So, so yeah. yeah. Such a great story and so much in that, in that story to discuss. But uh, your conclusion there, I, I really appreciate that it should be an option, right? It doesn't yeah. mean it, it's for everybody with type Absolutely. 1 diabetes. Mm. But the fact that it wasn't even considered. So you wouldn't have known anything about this as a doctor unless you had gone through it yourself. And, and I think that's yeah. so that's that's one thing that's so striking, and that's why so many doctors don't know about it and why it's so important for you to be spreading the word. But the other thing is your, your I guess, progress through type 1 diabetes and through the complications of it are sort of accepted as just yes. the way it is by, by so many doctors. Uh, and and it, it is sort of a revolutionary thinking, unfortunately, to say it doesn't have to be that way. Mm. Um, and also the way you were controlling your blood sugar, you said it was by the guidelines. So my recollection of the guidelines, at least here in the U.S., is, is you want to control to an HbA1c of around 7, yeah. um, 7%. And it's really not that good, is it? No. No. No, but so why do the guidelines say seven is okay when it really still puts the patient at significant risk of progressive disease and complications? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think the biggest problem is 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 seven is considered um, a pragmatic figure between complications and hypos. It's quite a hypos lot of evidence. Low blood sugar, low blood sugar yeah. because. Yeah. Um, you know, every time I present my my HbA1c to to my doctor, they say, "Oh, you must be having a load of hypos." I said, "No, you just have a look at my CGM. I'm not having any hypos." In my, the evidence suggests you have five times fewer, which is probably probably right. 
But people are, you know, ob- obviously quite rightly scared stiff of hypos because it's dramatic and, and you know, and, and uh, nobody wants to, to have such a dramatic situation. Running slightly high is, is clearly safer and it doesn't cause any immediate complications, but clearly you're stacking up problems for the future. And an HbA1c of 7% or 48 millimoles per mole, I think that, um, that that is the pragmatic figure based between complications and, and hypos based around a 50% carbohydrate diet. Now, with absolutely. So it's based around the 50%. Everything's based around 50% carbohydrate diets. The recommendation for statins based around 50% carbohydrates, et cetera, et cetera. So when it comes to a keto diet, I don't think seven, uh, 48 or 7% is, is um, particularly ambitious, really. I think you can go lower than that. Yeah, and I think that draws a, a wonderful comparison between how we think of things from a drug approach versus a lifestyle approach. Because yeah. when you're talking about insulin and dosing insulin for all the carbs you're eating, which is a very inexact science, there's going to be some error and you're going to have hypos. But once you get rid of the carbs, you really eliminate that, uh, or not eliminate, but drastically reduce that that variation. So a lot of people think of reducing carbohydrates as improving glycemic control at the top end, which it does. But for type 1 diabetes, it's also about controlling it at the bottom end, at the hypos, which I think is so important as well. Now, when you started doing this for yourself and then for your patients, it's it's still very uncommon, and I'm sure was even more uncommon at the time that you did it. Um, was there a lot of kind of pushback and a lot of things you had to overcome, a lot of resistance you had to overcome to say, hey, actually this does work and it is a viable option? I think in the main, there's polite um, it- polite indifference uh, people will listen to you but but really not take it on board uh, very few people will actually ask me directly how did you do that which i'm <laughs> probably they don't want to sort of a 45 minute monologue but but um <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know curiosity is the, the key here you know following the guidelines uh w- w- you know will get you to a level but i i think you know we need to rethink the guidelines and and i th- it seems to me that the the low fat sort of uh, idea of 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 uh, managing your diet is so entrenched as a fact it's very difficult for people to get their head around it and the other thing that's established almost as fact which which i know to be untrue is that you need to eat sugar in order to get energy that that's gi- that's almost a given you know oh where are you going to get your energy from you know when you go when you do your runs where are you going to get your energy from you know, when you go to all these running events, 10Ks, half marathons, marathons, whatever, you always get a goodie bag full of energy bars, you know, and and it is just not true that you need sugar for energy. And I think that is also sort of very hardwired in, in clinicians thinking and, and part of the reason for trying to sort of do other projects around type one management was to, to show that really you just do not need to eat sugar because your body will make enough of it for you. And once we get those messages out there, you can safely burn fat and you don't need sugar for energy. I I think that will get us a long way. And and also more pertinent to type 1 diabetes is that you don't need carbs if you're taking insulin. Insulin is a hormone replacement therapy. You know, you need the right amount of insulin at that moment in time. Now, we're never going to get it right as tight ones, even with the most rapid insulins and the best pumps. You're never going to mimic exactly the, this situation that was in your body when you had a functioning pancreas. Um, but you've got to just try your best to, to minimize the amount of insulin you need because you need much less than you need than you think you need, to be honest. And I, I want to talk about that a little bit more later. Um, so... You know, the physiological dose of insulin is relatively small. I mean, I started off when I was carving up, you know, before I went keto at about 40 to 45 units of insulin total a day. Now I'm on about 20. Uh, So that's half the dose of insulin. And that can only be good because the other problem with um, injecting insulin to such high volumes, more than your body physiologically needs, is that, of course, you're giving yourself essentially hyperinsulinemia high levels of insulin in type 1 diabetes and if you've got a family history of type 2 um or you you know you're otherwise vulnerable to type 2 you're probably going to promote type 2 diabetes on top of type 1 diabetes 
And, and I think you could call that an iatrogenic illness, an illness caused by the treatment process um, rather, you know, um, rather than it's a side effect of the treatment. Now, insulin is a life-saving drug and, and I'm, I'm nothing, I, you know, if the manufacturers stop producing insulin tomorrow, you know, <laughs> I'll be in trouble in a week. Um, but because it's a life-saving illness, if if you had to have complications as a result of that life-saving illness, well, you'd have to weigh up the balance and say, well, that's probably worth it. But I think there's enough evidence for the very low carbohydrate diet in type 1 diabetes to suggest there there are options for us. You know, in, in the UK, based, based around the, the current evidence that we have, the National Diabetes Audit, which collects about 96% of the type 1 population data, suggests that to get to 7%, uh, fewer than ten um, percent of the type ones actually get to ten to seven percent HbA1c forty eight, which is terrible. Wow! So we're working on 10%? a we're working on a ten percent wow. success rate. Thirty percent get to fifty six millimoles per mole, which I think is seven and a half. I'd have to check that. That's about um, seven and a half. Yeah. Yeah, but it's relatively it's a relatively poor percentage, and it's not really going up as a result of technology. Mm. Um, Combine that with the type 1 grit um, study done by David Ludwig and reported about a year and two years ago, where 90% or more of type 1s on a keto diet were achieving 7%. So you have to say, well, if 10% can make it on high-carb diet, conventional management, and 90% on keto, we should definitely be offering patients that as an option for management. You yeah, know, that's, that's, that's really a strong point we have to get across. We've got to rethink our management of type 1 diabetes before we cause any more damage. Because at the moment, it's what I call iatrogenic damage. It's possibly, you know, it's not necessarily reversible, but preventable that we're all going to get complications to such a level. We've yeah, got such, to rethink. A, such a great point. And, and, you know, in my training and everything I remember about type 1 diabetes, it was never mentioned about the dangers of, of too much insulin and inducing type two on type one. That seems, at least from my recollection, a, a pretty recent discussion within the past mm -hmm. maybe five years, it's in the past couple of years has gotten even more attention. And, but so important because like you said, insulin is a life-saving medication and that's what people focus on. And 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 you're right, it, you know, people accepted any potential downfall because they didn't see another option, but now mm -hmm. there clearly is another option. But like you mentioned, you have to overcome a lot of, of ingrained teaching about, mm. you know, like you said, eating this fat, you're going to stroke out any minute. I mean, that's mm. how powerful this teaching is. And mm. if you need energy for exercise, you need your carbohydrates, mm. um, but not true. So tell us about your um, sort of exercise background and what type of training and exercising you've been doing and what your um, fueling up looked like before and what it looks like now. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've I've never been. I've I've always liked the great outdoors. So I've always been an active person. But I wouldn't call myself an athlete by any stretch of the imagination. I'm a I'm a casual. You know, I'm a jogger. Um, and and I do a bit of cycling, and I have done a bit of mountain biking, that sort of stuff. You know, on a Sunday and my reg regime when I was sort of full time working really was was sort of three or four days a week at about six seven k something like that or a reasonable cycle ride but no more than three quarters of an hour of exercise most of that i would try to get my glucose level up above 10 to get started and then hope it wouldn't trickle down too much throughout the exercise and manage any hypos as you went um, mostly i didn't get any hypos it actually went higher because i was sort of overcompensating certainly for things like half marathons it's quite difficult when you're you know trying trying to complete something you know, without stopping, it's very inconvenient to have a hypo. Uh, certainly CGMs are useful, but they often report to you about 15 minutes after you realize your, your symptoms are, are of a hypo. So, so you're always behind the curve. Uh, so beforehand, it was carving up, having gels available, you know, measuring your glucose regularly. That's before the days of a CGM. And having pretty erratic traces, to be honest, and intending to run higher rather than lower, really for safety's point of view, because I tend to go out on my own to do runs in the hills and things, which we've got some lovely hills around here. So you can be out for an hour or so just on your own. Um, and obviously, uh, when I went low carb, I realized it was very easy 
to keep a good glucose profile. And then it got into my head that, yes, you can actually fast. I was a bit behind the curve with that. But yes, you can actually fast before exercise and you, you, you get even better control. So every time I do any sort of 10Ks, half marathons, whatever, I don't do many competitive, I don't do many organized events anymore. I tend to just go on my own for those sort of distances. But I rarely eat before I go. I, I'd, I'd be, I prefer now to be fasted. And I think for me that that controls things very, very well indeed. Because I, I, I don't need much um, rapid acting insulin at all. And it's, of course, the rapid acting which causes the problems. And so if you don't eat and then you go out and exercise, though, are you putting yourself at risk for hypoglycemia? It doesn't seem to be because my insulin volumes have reduced by half and hypoglycemia on very, very small doses of insulin, one, two, three units. I rarely inject more than three units of insulin for a meal now, whereas injecting eight to ten in, in the days of, of high carbing. So with that tiny amount of insulin, you're rarely going to get into big, big problems. And I, and I, I probably, if my glucose was, was less than seven, I'd probably wouldn't inject anything at all and just let the rapid, let the long acting sort of take the slack really. And it seems to work quite well. So it's my, now, my, so, my choice now to do that. Right. Right. So now if someone wants to try this out, are there certain precautions they should take though ahead of time to make sure that they don't get into trouble with hypos? Absolutely. I, I think you've got to get fat adapted and you've got you know, if you're going to do this sort of very low carbohydrate diet, you need to be uh, fully fat adapted so that, you know, you can burn glucose very efficiently from your body's own sources. So you don't need to eat it. And obviously then in sort of exercise I do, which is prolonged sort of steady exercise, your body will quite happily burn fat all day and, and for more than that if necessary. But if you're not fully fat adapted, you you may find a little bit more difficulty handling your, your glucose. So get fat adapted first, and and uh, but if not, monitor, 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 and uh, just cut your carbs down and be prepared just to take glucose rescue tablets as soon as you feel hypo. If you yeah, have no hypo point. awareness, you should be on a CGM or something from your healthcare provider. Right, and always yeah. having those tablets with you. Yeah, and what sort of time frame do you? do you think the fully fat adapted encompasses? I think you can do it. Uh, we just just done a project and you can do it in two weeks easily. You can get fully fat adapted in two weeks if you, if you do a lot of exercise. Most people would say three to four weeks. And obviously once three months are up, you're, you're well into it. And you're also very good then at managing your glucose and managing right. your insulin around that. So a, a few, a couple of weeks, three weeks to get, fat adapted probably up to three months to get your insulin adjusted so you, you're, you're perfecting it but then just try really have a go and just 20 minutes half an hour here and there monitor with your cgm be prepared to rescue with the glucose if necessary and refine it the cgm is such a remarkable device i, I can't do it with that one now <laughs> um I, you know i had one that d didn't function for a week i had a software issue and, and it's been awful you know it's reacting then you're reacting to glucose rather than being proactive with your insulin. So yeah. you can't see so, the trends. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, so CGMs basically designed for people or continuous glucose monitors, CGMs designed for people with type one diabetes and, and yes. so becoming so invaluable for that. Um, and we had a, a podcast episode with Dr. Casey Means, who's now using CGMs for the everyday person without yeah. type two or type one diabetes and all the things we can learn. So really kind of the emerging tool of the, of the new era of, of metabolic health, which I think is, is pretty remarkable, but, but really invaluable for, for people with type one diabetes. Yeah. All right. So that, that's a, a, a good, um, background of who you are, your thought process and how you got to this point. But now somehow you then take this jump to zero five, 100. So zero calories over five days covering a hundred miles. So tell us what led you to uh, to draw this up and create it. Okay, well, I, I'm getting a bit frustrated, really, that the, 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 the sort of low-carb option still isn't available. So over the years, I've been collecting from specialists and, and, and um, healthcare professionals sort of reasons why they're a little bit concerned about, about the keto diet in type 1 diabetes. And it falls into a few categories. Uh, the standard one, you must have sugar for energy, which is a general category. Uh, and then there's the one, if you're taking insulin, you must have carbs. 
And of course, you can't argue with that. If you're taking insulin and you have a hypo, you must have carbs. But in general, as I, as I said a bit earlier, if you're taking sufficient insulin for your needs at the time, you don't necessarily need carbohydrates as part of your diet. The other one is that oh, oh, if, you, if your body's burning fat, you're producing ketones. And if your body's burning fat, it's gone into starvation mode. Uh, you know, there's a half a grain of truth in that. But by and large, if you're nutritionally um, complete in your diet and you're getting enough calories, you're not in starvation mode. Your body's just flicking into a fat burning metabolism, uh, which is one could argue, and I certainly would argue strongly, that's probably the natural um, diet for the human animal, the natural metabolism for the human animal. Uh, and the the last thing, which which is very very prevalent, is that if you're in nutritional ketosis, so if you're if you're burning fat, not taking many carbs, you, you're very highly uh, you're at high risk of diabetic ketoacidosis. And of course, those two things, apart from the word keto and osis, um, the word acid in the middle, doesn't mean that it's related at all, and it isn't. If you've got sufficient insulin in your body for its needs at the time it's almost impossible for you to go into ketoacidosis. So I thought, well, how can I, how can I roll up all those concerns into one project? And, and I started to hear a lot of people saying, uh, you know, in conferences, oh, your body's got enough fat to last for days and weeks. If not, you know, you've got 20,000, 30,000 calories of energy stored in your body to be used for energy. So I thought, well, Okay, well, let, let's, let's, let's examine that. You know, we're all talking about it. Let's actually make sure we're right. Uh, so let's do a project to burn, say, 20,000 calories of energy. So that's 4,000 calories a day if you're going to run it. Or, uh, so we thought 4,000 calories, 20 miles a day. So that's going to take us to do that five days. So let's try just five days. That seems a challenge but it's sort of within the safe zone. Are you going to burn any body protein, sort of any muscle protein? Probably not, but it's within the safe enough zone not to need to worry about that. Uh, and it would certainly stretch the idea of um, uh, of fasting to, to say that, well, intermittent feeding is actually okay. So we thought, well, let's stretch fasting out to five days, examine our body fat burning using a breath analyzer, sort of metabolic breath testing, measure our ketones, wear continuous glucose meters, do mood scores, hunger scores, and see where we go with that. So that was that was the start of it. Took a bit of advice from a few people. Oh, can I do that? Can I join you? Yeah, I've got to do it. So so we started <laughs> off with quite a big group, really. People were quite enthusiastic. It was going to happen in May, but then the coronavirus sort of inter, in, intervened. But all those people have still kept kept on and we've got a great advisory team and we've we've knocked it about and we've thought about it and we've thought about the implications and and the complications and we've all done our training and our fasting and and it seems to seems to have you know been a good idea to to have even thought about doing it we haven't publicized it ahead because it's such a weird concept in type 1 diabetes that i i thought we'd get so much negativity i'd be under a lot of stress to to actually do it um, and and feel pressurized to want to do it. I mean, this is an experiment. It's an exploration. We 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 had three type ones keen to do it. We all trained up, but unfortunately, one couldn't get over to the UK because of COVID quarantining rules. But we were confident we could do it, and um, and we wanted to finish it, and then say, well, here's here's the data, and so that's what we we tried to do. And we had eight people uh, on the whole project. Two were type ones. Four overall were healthcare professionals, and four uh, were very interested in metabolic health. And one, and two of them had actually sorted out their metabolic health with a very low carbohydrate diet. So they, they were true believers in the in in the uh, in the idea. And then we managed to get an uh, Olympic rower, James Cracknell, who's got a couple of gold medals for for Great Britain, uh, and he joined us later on. Uh, you know, he he joined us about three weeks out, but but. He was very good to have on board because he's he understands intimately the science of carbohydrate loading for sport, and he learned a lot from just learn you know just watching what we do and and understanding that sport at the top level has very little to do with most people's lives, and yeah. you know Formula One racing cars have very little to do with going to the shops to the supermarket. Although the technology is the same, they're, they're at a totally different level of performance. 
So right, but so but twenty miles a day for five days. I mean, that is a challenge for anybody under any circumstance. And then to make it with no food um, makes it even a greater challenge. So, and I guess sort of because of that, you you did get some negative pushback. I mean, people. I'm going to quote some things. People called it a daft stunt, reckless, irresponsible, um, encouraging eating disorders. I mean, there were quite. Uh, there was quite a bit of negative press, especially in the UK, um, about it. So how did you handle that as you're preparing for this? And I guess, one, did you have doubts and second thoughts when you heard this? And and what was your response? We had tried our very best to work out our responses to everything ahead of, um, of the project, but we wanted to get the project finished before we got publicity. But that, that didn't happen. Um, publicity got out. Um we were a little bit concerned about the eating disorders side of it because, you know, that's clearly, you know, if you're actually saying to someone, well, you can actually run on your body fat and you don't need to eat, uh, yeah, I can fully understand that that may be a concern to people. And that we, we sort of spent a lot of time trying to work through that. Um, but we have managed to talk to people in the eating disorders field and we're, we're having a chat with them in about well, soon to talk through um, some of our findings in eating disorders because because it may actually be very useful for some of the information we've found from our project in retrospect. So far from promoting eating disorders, we may be actually helping to to, to improve the management of eating disorders. But that's some, something for another time. But it's really based around the, the low glucose levels that we found when, when we were running, uh, mm-hmm. the non-diabetics especially. Yeah, so I guess does that fall into the the reckless and the irresponsible quotes that people were making that it's it's dangerous that you're going to harm people? Um, was there a part of you that said, oh, maybe we are, maybe we are going to harm people? Or were you pretty confident the whole time that this was going to work out very well? I was going to do it come what may. I, I thought it was a useful contribution to the to the keto field, um, and I was prepared to take a risk on 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 that and take a risk on the fact that we'd all make it and because I knew we would. Um, and as it happened, all eight of us started, all eight of us finished. There were no injuries. No one had any problems. And everyone at the end was feeling a lot better than they did at the start. In fact, it was easier for most of us, um, well, for all of us, I think, than we thought it would have been. Uh, it wow, wasn't a problem. Remarkable. And of course, 20 miles, you can choose to run a walk and you're still going to get through the day. So it, it was. It was. there was a buffer there. I mean, yeah. I, think I, I think I ran about just over half of it and walked about about half of it. Um, some people ran it all. Some people decided to walk it all. But it's 4,000 calories roughly a day. So um, it's quite a... But the interesting thing is not many of us lost a huge amount of weight. I predicted I'd lose three kilograms and I lost three and a half kilograms. Some people only lost two kilograms of weight, which is phenomenal. Yeah. The average was about three and a half kilograms between the eight of us. Very interesting. It shows you can't really exercise off your weight. <laughs> right. And and you, I think it's important to mention that you had safety measures in place, that everybody was being very closely monitored. Absolutely. Uh, I assume you had a safety team and everybody had CGMs and was getting regular check-ins. So it's not like you were just going out on your own willy-nilly and doing this. It was very well organized um, with a lot of safety measures in check. So Ab- Absolutely. It took, it took us seven months to plan it. It took lots and lots of, of toing and froing with, with, with conversations with, with people who were experts in the field of, of metabolic health and low carb. Um, we did a lot of training. All of us did a lot of fasting and we did a lot of running and fasting. And the diabetic people with diabetes, we did a lot of running, fasting and monitoring. Um, so by the time we came to the start line, we were, we were well prepped. And also we had, as you say, lots of safety measures in place. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we had lots of ways of finding people because, you know, partly because of COVID rules and partly because everyone did their own thing. You know, we were we were spaced out en route. But there, there's plenty of hydration stations, there other doctors running and other doctors supervising, you know, uh, from from vehicles. So. It was it was it was a very tightly planned operation, uh, as you'd expect of, of something where there's such a responsibility to deliver the right message safely. Right, right. Yeah. So you you obviously didn't eat anything. What did you drink? Was it just water the whole time? Water and black coffee and black tea, uh, mostly water to be honest. So yeah. Not interesting. At the end, uh, coffee didn't have much appeal. It's, it's mm-hmm. funny. A taste went for coffee. It's basically just water, really. Yeah. Okay. 
And so what was the experience like for you? I mean, you already sort of hinted that it got easier as it went on. Um, but tell us about, you know, the first couple of days, what you felt and then what changed and when it changed. Yeah. First, first day was, was great because, you know, 20 miles, we did 23 or four that day, I think, but it was a lovely sunny day. We were all up for it. We were all full of, full of, you know, enthusiasm and, right. you know, the day went quite quickly, to be honest. It was quite a sociable day because uh, people were getting to know each other. Some, some were walking sort of reasonably close to each other, COVID permitting. And, um, it, you know, we stopped off at one or two of the towns to have have some water and at a cafe. You know, it wasn't all hard work, uh, and it was fine. It was all good. Day two was okay, a bit achy for me for the from muscles, but good recovery the next day. Day three was by far my worst day. I think I had problems hydrating. I uh, wasn't sort of taking care of hydration. Um, a bit tired at the end of day three. Day four was a wonderful day woke up full of energy, brain was wired, and I felt I could have run twice the distance that day. And I, I ran wow. the whole thing that day and I had energy to spare. I thought, well, I should have just finished it today, do an extra 15 miles, you know. Um, but, but it, you know, didn't. But it, it was it was great. I, I, I thought, wow, this is amazing to get this far with this. this. You see, it wasn't starvation. This, this is what you have to remember. I wasn't starving. I just wasn't eating food because I had enough internal supplies to use. Yeah. So it wasn't starvation. And I was, I was, you know, I was well nourished beforehand. I, I, I knew what my minimum weight was. So I, I stacked up my weight ahead of, ahead of it. So I was ready to go a bit like these sort of animals that do big migrations. Really, we were all ready right. to go. And then we were able to use the fuel sources that we'd, we'd stored up to, to actually uh, used throughout those five days so it wasn't starvation starvation is when you're nutrient depleted your fat stores have gone you know right. when that's when you've got an eating disorder and then when you stop eating that is true starvation you know which is an important caveat anybody who is in that malnourished or underweight absolutely. category should not try absolutely. so you, you purposely yeah. made sure nobody was in that category absolutely yeah. yeah and so so sort of kind of contrary to what i think most people would think that as it went on, it got easier and it got better at day four. Most people think, oh, you must be getting exhausted and so fatigued and starving. But no, it actually got better by day four and day five. I mean, that's that's pretty remarkable. That was a pleasant yeah. surprise to find that. And it was across the board. We, we did mood scores. We did hunger scores and uh, uh, we did sleep scores. I think yeah. the amount of ketones we're having swilling around our brain, they kept us very active. A lot of people didn't sleep that well. Uh, sleeping was an issue for quite a few people because we were sort of wired up, but we weren't tired. I mean, I had, yeah. I, I'd slept about, I don't know, six hours on and off throughout those five days per night. Mm -hmm. And my fourth day, you know, it was great. So yeah. it, it wasn't, you know, the sleep didn't sort of hinder my performance. And, and certainly afterwards, my, the next morning after the whole event, it was as if I hadn't done it. You know, I wasn't aching at all. I wasn't exhausted or tired or anything. It was um, very straightforward. So yeah, that speaks good. volumes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And did you run into any trouble with blood sugar or insulin? Did you have any issues with that? Yeah, I had uh, the problem with transitioning from, uh, I'm normally on about 20 units of insulin a day. An interesting finding was that when I'm fasting, I can get down to about between four and six units a day. Wow. So there's something about, you know, something about insulin resistance, something about, you know, glucagon and food that kicks your sugar levels up. So the background insulin is probably, we need something, something I'm, I'm, I'm interested in looking at a bit in a bit more detail at some point. So transitioning down from 20 units to six units is, is an art form. And, and, and I, over a sort of, I don't know, I suppose I did four or five three-day fasts during the, the training phase. So I was able to sort of work out roughly my insulin transition downwards. But on day uh, one, I elected to take some glucagon rather than glucose. As you know, glucagon is the hormone that is, counters the action of, of, of insulin. So if you have a low blood glucose, you can rescue it with glucagon. I wanted to do that one so I didn't take as many calories as, uh, as I might otherwise do. And two, just to see if glucagon was effective during a fast. I'd proved it in training that you, it, glucagon has a response up to three days of fasting. Because a big oh. worry amongst diabetologists is if you're, if you're on a keto diet, you, you run out of something called liver glycogen. And that's the substrate glucagon works on. 
So if you end up in hospital in, in, a, in, a, in a hypoglycemic coma, they can't rescue it necessarily with glucagon, which is a standard drug that they would use. But I think I showed that that, that is not the case. It works certainly to 72 hours. And I used it twice during the run. But unfortunately, the big side effect for me was, was nausea. So it, it, I, I decided not to use it after two days. I was hoping to use it for five days. But I used a total of um, 18 grams of glucose tablets over three different times to rescue symptomatic hypos, a little bit tired when running, nothing exciting, nothing like it's going to pass out, no sweating, no palpitations, nothing, nothing like that. But just you just know. And my, my glucose was running at about just under three, um, but otherwise asymptomatic. But that that's the other interesting thing. The people that were that weren't diabetic who were wearing CGMs and doing this, uh, two two of them were, managed to keep the CGMs on and get good data. For much of the time, those two were running well under three, completely asymptomatic. You and know, stuff two, like below sixty or so, right? Sixty um, milligrams per deciliter, just for the conversion. It's divided by eighteen, isn't it? So fifty forty, yeah, sixty, yeah, yeah. Okay. Something like that. So yeah. what that shows really is that, you, you, you know, are we, do we need to redefine what a low glucose is on a ketogenic diet? Yes. Because if people are functioning less than three, fully functioning, you know, getting through three days of, of glucose under three, feeling on fat and feeling great and having no symptoms whatsoever, they're clearly their brain isn't being starved of glucose. And that has right. important implications in, in things like anorexia nervosa where... It's well known that people who are starving and, and fasting at the same time are uh, have low glucoses. But is that just a, a normal state in this in this condition, or or is it pathological? And right. you know, it's it's but that that's that's something that I'm you know not expert in. But that's sort of an, uh, something that will be sort of talked about, I think, in the future. So yeah. observing that our glucose levels could run lower on a fat adapted state is, is quite an interesting finding. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then what about ketone levels? Ketone Did you levels, run into any uh, trouble or no, have any concerns? None about whatsoever. Now, if, if anyone's listening to this, who's, uh, who's into sort of high carbohydrate, ketone levels of, of, of between three and five would, would actually terrify them. But my ketones were mostly running at about three. Uh, I had one 5.7, couple of twos. They, they were running well within the nutritional ketosis levels and I tested them twice a day for five days. And the day after it was running at 2.1 when I had, I'd actually uh, refed. And uh, my normal ketones running run normally between about 0.6 and 1. So yes, I was in more ketosis as I was running, which I'd expect. But there's no way I was in the diabetic ketoacidotic range. And, and my glucose levels were in the normal range between uh, 3.5 and 7 for at least 90% of the time, if not 100% of the time. Yeah. So I had a flat glucose trace for five days and I had nutritional ketosis, but not one sign of diabetic ketoacidosis, nor did the other person with type one either have any ketoacidosis issues. Now, were your ketone levels higher than the participants without uh, no, diabetes? They were the same. No, they are about the same. Yeah. Mm. Isn't that remarkable? Mm. Yeah. Uh, so diabetes had nothing to do with that really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's great. And, and uh, I mean, it, such an amazing feat. Eight started, eight completed, uh, fairly similar experience for, for most of you, it sounds like. You collected a lot of data. Um, was there some, so other than the ones we talked about, was there something that really surprised you about the data? We've got to analyze it all at the moment. Uh, it seems that the, the, the metabolic breath testing, which we did, was called the RQ level, I think, isn't it, to test whether we're fat burning, sugar burning. Uh, it seemed to be mostly fat burning but one or two people throw up some surprises with respect to that and and uh, there doesn't seem to be any trend for the group of eight of us there doesn't seem to be any consistency for eight of us which suggests that we're all individuals and we're all going to have to work work things out individually um ketone levels were not a surprise uh i think the mood was the, the biggest thing that surprised me the mood and energy that i had at day days four and five I'd already done a four-day fast and, and uh, 13 miles a day, which is about 20 k's a day, uh, and that was all right, but I was a bit tired towards the end of that. But day four and five was a really high sort of point for all of us on, on the project. 
Yeah. No one was glad to oh. finish. And interestingly, when we refed, we didn't really overeat. Most of us just ate, you know, what you call a normal portion, which is interesting. Yeah. And that's so important for, for breaking a fast anyway, regardless of your physical activity. Yes. If you if you break it with too big of a meal or eating too fast, you could really get into some digestive Absolutely. issues. So Absolutely. Yeah, that's important. Yeah. So now looking in the rear view mirror, now that you've, you've done it, um, you've got, you had some negative press, but mostly overwhelmingly positive pre press, uh, and the rear view mirror, what do you think you've accomplished? What do you think might change because of this? I think, I think we've shown that type one diabetics can safely miss breakfast and not go into <laughs> diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, so, so I, I think from my point of view, from type one diabetes, we've answered every single concern of, of, of um, diabetologists around ketogenic type of diet. And we, we've, we've, we've sort of answered that um, concern at an extreme state. I mean, it's very unlikely that anyone will want to emulate that. And I don't, I don't recommend it. It was, it was an exploratory um, experiment really to see what happened. So I'm hoping I can use that to promote ketogenic diets as being safe because we've shown that you don't need to eat sugar for energy. We certainly didn't eat any for five days and we weren't lacking in energy. You, if you're taking physiological doses of insulin, you don't need to eat carbohydrates to cover it. Um, and I think they're very, very important. And you don't go into diabetic ketoacidosis if you're type one on a ketogenic diet. So we've, we've answered a lot of concerns. So hopefully diabetologists will start to be able to feel more confident that they're not going to run into difficulties with their patients by exploring a keto diet with their patients. And you know, it's quite a relief as, you know, as, as doctors, as you know, it's, uh, it's hard changing paradigms uh, when yes. you've been okay with the para, you know, with the paradigm that you're used to. So if, if you think, if you genuinely think that someone's going into diabetic ketoacidosis as a result of the keto diet, well, you, I, I would certainly, if I believe that, I'd be very concerned at recommending the diet. So I'm hoping we've removed some of those those concerns and um, we'll be able to move on a little bit with promoting ketogenic diets for, as an option for people with type 1 diabetes. Yeah. Now, even despite this overwhelmingly positive experience, do you think there's still going to be some pushback from doctors and they're still going to be hesitant to to adopt it? Absolutely. I, th I yeah. think there's, um, unfortunately, there's more to m medical um, progress than science. <laughs> you know, the science, I think, well is un undoubted. But, you know, there's a lot of politics involved. There's lots of habits. There's lots of vested interests, you know, and that will always exist. Um, so we, all we can do is is give the evidence and, and try to give people options. And, and hopefully, as more and more people discover this is an option, they will demand it, really. And at some point, um, people are going to get very, very cross indeed. And I, I know people get cross when they suddenly discover um, a way of managing their diabetes, you know, and they've been struggling for 10, 15 years, and they've suddenly re revolutionized their life. And, and, you know, they get a bit angry, really, that, well, why didn't they offer me this before? Because Richard Bernstein knew this in 1988. Yes. I didn't. I did discover it till 2015, much to my shame. <laughs> and and you know, I, I try to just push it on now to try to use you know my status as a doctor, if you like, to sort of move it on into my to, to my colleagues and say this is probably a safe option. Don't worry about it. Let's just provide this as a, an equal option to low carb, but talk about it as a, as an option. Don't don't say, oh well, you know, uh, it's a fad, and uh, you're going to get DKA, and oh, you've got to have no fat. You know, if people want keto, they say, well, this is what you do to go keto. This is the diet you need. These are the things you need to look out for, and this is how you manage your insulin. If you want to go high carb, this is the diet you need. These are the things to look out for. This is how you manage your insulin. And I don't think it's fair to apply current dietary guidelines to a keto diet um, and talk about keto in a negative way. We've got to provide it as a, as a good option. You know, it's not like if I said, I want to learn French, I want to speak French. And they said, oh, you don't need to do that because all the people in France speak English. No, mm -hmm. I want to learn French. So teach me, talk to me in French and we'll do the whole thing, if you see what I mean. And I, I think yeah. that would make it. And I think if we could provide equal options, skillfully delivered, and then we all start to change the paradigm. But until we can 
teach the healthcare professionals that these options are safe and get good results. You know, you'll get more than 10% of your patients to target. You'll get nearly all of them to target and how wonderful that will be for the patient and your own sense of, satisf sense of satisfaction. Um, I yeah. think we can then start to change things a lot, but we've got a lot to take, <laughs> got a long, long time to go. This is just one step on the way to hopefully changing attitudes. And, and I hope this contributes to it. We'll get some medical papers out. We've got a film on the way. We're just trying to reach more and more people so they may become more interested in it. Yeah, great. Well, you certainly deserve a, a lot of recognition for what you've done. And and not just as a publicity stunt, as some people initially said. I mean, as you've so well pointed out in this interview, there was a purpose behind this, a medical purpose, a purpose for helping people improve their lives and helping doctors improve the care of their patients. Um, and I think you you pointed out the points very well on, on what we should all take away from this. So so thank you for doing that. Thank you for putting your neck on the line. Uh, it was a sort of, you could say it was a risky uh uh, a risky uh, process that you did, but you you did it very safely. You pulled it off, and I think we should all learn a lot. So you mentioned a movie. You mentioned medical papers. Um, so you know what else is coming next, and where can people find you to learn more? Well, um, www. zero five one hundred. So all letters and one hundred numbers. Zero five one hundred. dot com is our website where we'll publish everything, uh, and then hopefully people will start to look at my own type one website which is um type1keto.com it's the number one in the middle and type1keto.com which is where they'll find information on how to transition to a keto lifestyle in conjunction with their healthcare professionals uh it's not particularly standalone it's it's for, for them to to work in partnership and there's a lot of healthcare professional teaching on that site as well which they're fully, fully able to access without having to be a healthcare professional so Great. thank you and thank you for the yeah. opportunity to to talk about the, my favorite project of the year, 05100.com. <laughs> I think it might be my favorite project too. That was remarkable. <laughs> uh, so well done. And thank you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. That's great.